All right, welcome to the British History Podcast Christmas Special. Now, as you already know, this show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. And if you sign up for a yearly membership this month, you'll also get buttons, stickers, and a special surprise gift. So if you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. It also makes an awesome Christmas gift. And thank you very much to Patricia, Jonathan, and Joaquin for joining up already. All right, this year for our Christmas special, I thought I'd give you an idea of what Christmas was like for some of the people in Middle Ages Britain. Now, Christmas in the Middle Ages was quite different from our modern experience in many ways. And like with everything else, it would have varied from location to location. However, in general, the celebration would have been guided by a book called The Use of Serum. Now, the use was compiled at Salisbury Cathedral, and it quickly became the predominant ceremonial book in England and Scotland, and remained a bestseller until about the 16th century, with the rise of Protestantism in England. So, while there are always variations from town to town, and by now you probably instinctively know that there isn't a monolithic English or Scottish culture, but rather just a patchwork of smaller cultures, the use of serum does provide at least some degree of uniformity on how Christmas was celebrated during the Middle Ages in England and Scotland. So that is where a lot of our information is going to come from. So, with that in mind, here's what some of the people did. Starting with Advent Sunday, which is four Sundays before Christmas, the Christian community had their diets restricted. Now, this restriction wasn't a matter of having specific barred foods, but rather people were supposed to live a more simple life. Now, something to keep in mind is that this would have been a matter largely of perspective. If you had elaborate feasts, simplifying your diet probably would have involved getting rid of the frills. For example, in one 15th century account, James Ryman complained about how he wasn't allowed to have any puddings or sauce. And generally, it seems that the wealthy had their meals restricted to fish, soups, and stews in lieu of the elaborate roasts, pies, and other feasts that they were accustomed to. So that was what was going on on the upper end of the social ladder. But if you were poor and you were told that you needed to restrict your diet for four weeks, what were you going to do? You couldn't very well cut out pudding because you weren't eating that anyways. And chances are, for you, a stew would have been a welcome meal. So for the poor, the four weeks before Christmas were probably significantly more difficult and ascetic. However, that was what the church expected. So it seems that that was what people did. For four long weeks. And then Christmas Eve came along. And the fast went into high gear. This time, there were specific food restrictions, and they applied to everyone. This wasn't a matter of eighthlings being denied pudding. Now everyone was forbidden to eat meat, cheese, and eggs. That's right, no fry-ups on Christmas Eve. Needless to say, Christmas became quite the object of excitement. I mean, for four weeks, the poor had been going hungry, and even worse, the wealthy had been going without pudding. And then on Christmas Eve, everyone had to pretend to be vegan. But they just had to last for one more day. Christmas Day was so close, they could practically taste it. And actually, taste was a big deal. We have accounts all the way through to the Tudor period of wealthy families purchasing wildly large numbers of groceries in preparation for the Christmas feast. 
And we're not just seeing a vast quantity of food, but we're also seeing high-quality foods on the list as well. They were really living it up. We read of nobles holding dinner with multiple roast swans, barrels of wine, and God knows what else. So, as everyone was sprinting to the finish line of their fast on Christmas Eve, they knew that in the pantry, there were all sorts of fantastic dishes waiting for them. Well, provided that they were rich. Now, the expectation was that the wealthy would open their doors for the Christmas feast. However, the reality was somewhat less than that aspiration. And it seems that many nobles merely entertained their equals, and at most, those who were only one rung lower on the social ladder. So it's highly doubtful that Unferth had swan for Christmas dinner. But he probably did the best he could, and like everyone else on the aisle, he was probably quite eager to get to the part where he could eat it. But I can't help but wonder if interpersonal conflicts rose in England and Scotland as Christmas got closer. I mean, four weeks of a restricted diet is pretty rough. And maybe James made such a big deal about the lack of pudding because he was low on blood sugar and he was getting a bit hangry. Anyway, after four weeks of varying levels of fasting, and then one long day of Middle Ages veganism, Christmas Day was here. But just because it was Christmas Day didn't mean that the people could bum-rush the pantry and just tuck in. There were still religious matters that had to be attended to. And prior to dawn, the Mass of Matins was held, though this was just the first of three Masses for the day. Now, at the end of that first Mass, a man would stand on a wooden platform over the nave. This was called the Rood Loft. And generally, it would have an image of the crucified Christ, along with Mary and John. The man would sing the genealogy of Christ, while another person brought a candle for him to light. Meanwhile, others would circulate throughout the church carrying burning tapers, which are just slender candles. And soon, most everybody in the church would have a candle. Afterwards, a collection would typically follow, gathering payment for the service and the candles from the probably light-headed and absurdly eager flock. And then, the service was over. And now, now the eating could begin. Game on. And actually, this would begin 12 days of festivity and feasting that would last until the Epiphany. I'm sure many of you know the 12 Days of Christmas song. Well, this is where it came from. And given how hungry everyone is, I wonder how long that partridge lasted. Or the pear tree, for that matter. And fun fact, all the gifts from that song were birds. Even the rings were actually birds. So that song is actually about chowing down on fowl. Now, something else to note is that most landowners in England and Scotland were barred from requiring their tenants to work for the 12 days. So honestly, that's not too bad. And the Lord was required to provide a single feast, which also sounds quite nice. But here's where that custom could get really rough. While the Lord was required to provide a feast, the serfs were required to provide the Lord with gifts. And guess what the serfs would give? Yep, food. So this feast that the Lord provided was actually stocked by the servants' own gifts. And I would bet you anything that at least some of those lords only provided some of the gifted food for the feast and just kept the rest for themselves. But hey, unscrupulous lords aside, at least they got 12 days off from work, which is much more than most of us get these days. How's that for a little bit of Christmas cheer? 
Serfs in the Middle Ages got more vacation time than you probably do. Why do you think Santa wears so much red? Food for thought, comrade. Anyway, so these feasts could be pretty big deals, especially among the royalty. For example, King Richard II had 10,000 guests at one of his. And they apparently were really hungry since they ate 200 oxen and drank 200 tubs of wine. Can you even imagine the scale of an event like that? To put it into perspective, that's about 75% of the entire population of Boston a decade before the American Revolution. All at one party. And 200 tubs of wine? That's a lot of booze, even for the English. And if you were at one of these events, you might have heard people shouting, Wassail! Which was Old English for your health. And then someone would shout back, Drink hail! Which was basically, drink and be healthy. And then they'd drink. Now, this seems to have been a toasting tradition that could have gone all the way back to the era of Beowulf. And by the late 13th century, it looks like it led to wassail cups and wassail bowls. Basically, bowls and cups for toasting. And according to records that popped up by the end of the 14th century, it looks like they actually became valuable heirlooms. Now, where this becomes really interesting is in the stories of wassail bearers. We're told in one account that on Twelfth Night, twelve maidens entered singing with wassails. Twelve maidens a-singing. It almost sounds like ten lords a-leaping, doesn't it? Now, it isn't clear whether or not they were going from house to house. But about a century later, that would become custom. Basically, those maidens might have been early Christmas carolers. And it does look like caroling was established by the late Middle Ages. And the interesting thing to me is that all of that might have come from something as simple as offering a toast, and then it became increasingly more ritualized and festive. But anyway, you have a lot of people drinking and a lot of people toasting. But it wasn't just booze, toasts, and delicious meaty dinners. At the better parties, there would have also been entertainment. And of course there would be, right? Because you know that once Uncle Ethel Hera gets drunk, he's going to start talking about how things were better in his day before the hippies mandated that you couldn't kill the Welsh on sight. So, to avoid an interfamily shouting match and a potential blood feud, there were singers and players provided at some of these feasts. Sort of like how Americans use football. Now, depending on the wealth and status, not to mention the availability of talent, the type and variety of entertainment would vary wildly. Now, typically, whoever was hired would stick around and provide entertainment for the entirety of the feasting period. And that wasn't too bad if there were several performers hired. For example, the Duke of Buckingham had a troupe of actors, three jesters, a group of musicians, and an acrobat. And that allows for some variety and also gives the performers a chance to rest. But there are also records of landowners only getting a single performer for the entire holiday. For example, a noble in Suffolk hired a single harpist for all the feasts from Christmas Day through to New Year's. That would test even the most calloused of fingers. And also, how many times could you reasonably listen to the Middle Ages equivalent of green sleeves before going mad? And entertainment wasn't just for the nobility. The church would also hire players to perform their own productions. And these would function as both a community event and also a fundraiser, with food and drink being made available for purchase. 
Now, we don't have detailed records on the type of plays that were put on until the later medieval period, so we will have to use our imagination for the secular performances. But I would imagine that at least some of the liturgical plays would have involved the nativity in one way or another. Interestingly, despite the prevalence of entertainment, it looks like the upper echelons of society would only watch a couple of performances each Christmas season. Though, I guess that level of disinterest might provide a sense of majesty and wealth. And also, the host probably had to focus more on mingling and political matters than simply being entertained the entire time. To do anything else might have caused some degree of scandal, sort of like if you throw a party and then you just sit and watch the TV the whole time. And besides, there weren't just live performances to take part in. There were also all manner of board games and card games that would have been circulating. Don't forget what we learned in the feasting series. The Anglo-Saxons, now the English, loved games. And it wasn't just games. There was what Bishop Mitford called disguisings. Now this sounds actually like a lot of fun. Essentially what we're talking about are a group of people who would wear fancy dress and enter the party wearing disguises, ranging from simple masks to recreations of entire animal heads. Dragons, peacocks, you name it. And sometimes they would dress as people of note, like a pope or an emperor. And then they would drink, dance, sing, give gifts, make speeches. It sounds like quite the party, and a little bit like a masquerade. Though it did come with a dark side. Because with that many people masked, it allowed for some of the more unscrupulous members of society to engage in criminal endeavors with a reduced chance of being caught. And this was so bad that the custom of disguisings was even linked to an attempted coup. Consequently, it was eventually banned. But while it lasted, it does sound like a lot of fun. We also have references to a mysterious tradition in southern England that, to be honest, I have no idea what to do with, but it definitely piques my interest. We're told of a group of people who are referred to as hognells, hoglers, hoggins, and hogners and it looks like they were active during the Christmas holiday. Though interestingly, it looks like, at least in Sussex, the quote hognal time could last until February 2nd, which is quite a long time. So what is the hognal time, I can hear you ask? I haven't the foggiest. We know that they were a group of some sort, but who they were and how they were treated is a bit of a mystery. But here's a few facts for you to chew over. In Old English, Hagenhune means protected guest. And in Norman, Hagwene, and I'm certain I'm butchering that, means a New Year's gift. The only other real piece of evidence we have is from the Elizabethan era, where a parish in Somerset was gathering money for the Hognell time. So the linguistic clues in combination with a community raising money does make this sound like it might have been some sort of charitable tradition. And some scholars have argued that the hognal time could have been a time when hognals might have lived in households as guests, maybe in return for performing some sort of service. And looking at all of it, I wonder if this was some sort of way of dealing with the destitute and homeless during the coldest time of the year. And so maybe the hognals were essentially the homeless. And the fact that some parts of England were extending the hognal time until February does make it seem like it might serve the purpose of protecting the homeless. 
but that is just wild speculation. It could also be something crazy, like bribing fairies to keep them from stealing kids, for all we know. Anyway, so that would have been going on all throughout the Christmas holiday, as would the feasts, masses, and celebrations. But something to keep in mind is that not all of the days of Christmastide were equal. The most important of them was, of course, Christmas. But the second most important day was New Year's Day, January 1st. And it was persistently known as New Year's Day, even after New Year's was changed to March in the 12th century. It seems like no one cared that the ruling class and the church decided to move the date, and they just kept celebrating as usual. Now, the fun part of New Year's was the gift-giving, which was actually a holdover from the old Roman custom. Though the fun really depended on where you were on the gift-giving chain. For example, some monarchs would demand gifts on New Year's Day, and actually, Henry III was criticized for extorting gifts from his subjects. Charming, right? But the poor behavior of some greedy monarchs aside, we do see evidence all throughout English nobility of this gift-giving tradition, and it went as far as the Tudors, with Henry VII receiving his gifts privately in his room, after he put his shoes on, of course. And then the queen would receive hers in her room. Not very romantic or festive. Though, I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe Henry VII as romantic or festive, so I shouldn't be surprised. Something to point out, though, is that while we have records of New Year's being a gift-giving time for the landowning class, with its appearance in every full household account from the 15th to the middle 16th century, there are no records of the commoners giving gifts to each other. It might have just been something for the wealthy, though some of the lower orders might have received gifts based upon their proximity to the revelry. For example, the Corporation of the City of London demanded that servants stop asking for gifts, and that they definitely stop menacing their superiors when they were refused. It looks like the City of London hasn't changed a bit. But despite the miserly ways of the City of Scrooge, New Year's Day was supposed to be a rather festive and generous occasion, with, of course, a feast. Basically, the key to celebrating Christmas tide in Middle Ages style, at least if you were wealthy, was to always be feasting, just constant eating. Now, after New Year's Day, the third most important day was Twelfth Night, which ended the Christmas holiday. Just like with Christmas, this one began with a mass though this time the flock wouldn't have been half-starved. Instead, they might have been in food coma. But those who managed to stay awake probably would have witnessed a service celebrating the three kings and the star of Bethlehem. And after that service, there would be, and this will shock you, another feast. And despite the marathon of eating and drinking that's been happening over the course of 12 days, it was Twelfth Night that would have had the most impressive of feasts and the most impressive of entertainment. Everything was leading to this crescendo. It would have been a hell of a party. And then, at last, it was over. And on the 13th day, you would begin your treatment for heart disease and gout. Spoiler alert. That treatment was probably horse dung. So, there you have it. The 12 days of Christmas. Now, I'm guessing that none of you have done the full four weeks of fasting, so you probably don't want to celebrate in Middle Ages fashion. But, if you decide to do so anyways, 
might I suggest an antacid? Because you're going to be in for a long, hard road. And also, you're probably going to want to designate a driver. Because, oh my god, could those people pack away their liquor. Anyway, I hope you all have a fantastic holiday filled with food, friends, and a bare minimum of medicinal equine feces. Alright, thanks for listening. 